This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the fruit of the Spirit. The scripture reading for the sermon this evening is from Psalm 98. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy harp have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with a harp. With the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the word and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let him sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Loving Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would open our hearts to receive what you have to say to us, that we would hear afresh with new and deeper faith the glad tidings of the gospel, and we pray that you would warm and enlarge our hearts to respond with hope and with joy. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon your people, as you promised to do when we gather to worship you and to hear you and to receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I hope you feel very welcome if you are new here, and of course you're always welcome. When you return, as we gather as the family of God, and we've been just begun working a couple of weeks ago, a new series on the fruit of the Holy Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. And if you were here last week, we meditated on the first of the gifts being love. We worship a God who is love, who pours his love into our hearts so that we can love our brothers and sisters fervently from the heart with the very love that is from God. And this afternoon, we are meditating on joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Because wherever the Spirit is present, wherever Pentecost happens again with fresh power, there is always an explosion of joy in God, of a spirit of gladness. And our faces begin to shine with a holy delight in the Lord as we lift up loud songs of praise to him. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we will never be fruitful for the Lord. We will never achieve what God has for us. We'll never do great things in our master service if we're always gloomy and downcast and stern and morbid, spreading unbelief and despair wherever we go. It's hard to see how God would be glorified in that kind of spirit. And so here we are this afternoon meditating on Psalm 98 in order to stir up the joy of the Spirit and help us to obey the command, which is also an invitation, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This book of Psalms contains 150 poems of praise to God. But if you go through the book, you'll discover that the whole range of human emotions and human experiences are covered. And a lot more complicated emotions than sheer happiness. In fact, in the Psalms, there are more songs of lament than there are songs of joy. And we hear these expressions from David and the other psalmists of raw pain and brutal honesty before God. People who are singing from the pit, who are in the darkness, crying out in anguish, struggling with doubts, asking God, God, where are you? Why aren't you keeping your promises? Why do you seem to be so absent? And we hear in the Psalms, the people of God struggling with fear and grief and anxiety and despair and even anger. The Psalms are full of honest faith, maybe more honest than we're comfortable with, wrestling with God. And the surprising thing is that God considers himself honored by those Psalms as well. Because they too are inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to the church down the centuries to give us words to express to God. Worship happens in both the major and the minor keys. Not just the joyfant, triumphant F major and C major, but there are other keys in which we express our heart towards God and our faith in him. And through the Psalms, we see a movement, often within individual songs, a movement from pain towards praise. As the psalmist, in his confusion and his affliction and his doubts and his struggles, as he prays to God, he reorients himself on who God is and what God has done. And I think one of the lessons of the whole book of Psalms is that Real joy doesn't come from closing our eyes and stopping our ears to the hard realities of life, but facing them and pressing through them to encounter God in a deeper way. And I don't know if Christians are always willing to do that. If the church is actually willing and able to be as honest and raw before God as the Psalms are. And I think often, as Christians, we prefer to offer superficial answers to profound sufferings, to heal the wound of God's people lightly. And if this church is a place where people are always putting on a forced smile, and we only sing happy, bouncy, cheerful songs, and we suppress the pain and the struggles, this is not going to be a very welcoming place for people who are going through hard times, our brothers and sisters who are suffering and confused. And sometimes we need to grieve with those who grieve as well as rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep together in the presence of God. Not to stay there, but to wrestle through and fight through to a place of deep and abiding joy in God 
a joy that doesn't necessarily resolve our confusion or explain our suffering, but somehow transcends it and sets it within the larger picture of God's character and God's purposes. That though we grieve, we don't grieve as those without hope. We don't worship because the worship leader orders us to. You ever been in a church where the worship leader is kind of bullying the congregation? Like, you dance, jump, sing. And I'm a rebellious person in those circumstances, and that's where I just want to cross my arms and refuse to do it, because joy can't be commanded by a sheer act of the will, whether someone else is commanding me or whether I'm trying to command myself. The heart needs to be stirred and warmed by a worthy cause for joy, if joy is going to be spontaneous and genuine. That's why Psalm 98 says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. We don't want mindless worship, brainless emotionalism. We want joy that is deeply rooted in God and the things of God. And one of the lessons here is that joy does not arise from my own emotional state. And you might have woken up in a good mood or a very crabby mood this morning. You might be quite cheerful today, or you might be a little depressed and down. That is actually ultimately irrelevant. We take ourselves as we are, wherever we find ourselves, towards God. And what stirs us up to worship is not how I'm feeling and my subjective state, but the objective truth and reality of God and his gospel. And worship and joyful praise also does not come from my personality type. Some people are just naturally bubbly and effervescent. They're like a human borjomi, where they're just flowing over with cheerfulness and joy, and they're always smiling and always have happy things to say. Some of us are naturally kind of melancholic, and we tend to find the cloud in every silver lining. The fruit of the Spirit, including joy, is for all of us, not just for those who are naturally smiley people. It's for all of us. And this joy also does not arise from my immediate circumstances, right? Not from whether I got a new job or good grades or a new girlfriend or a good parking spot. Not easy to find in Tbilisi. Because those things, from the trivial to the more, the deeper ones, they're all ultimately unstable, aren't they? It's not wrong to enjoy happiness and those things. That's natural. But those things come and they go. And what we're hungering for is a joy that will get us through both the good times and the bad times. Where no matter what's happening in our lives, the heart of worship can express itself towards God. And the psalmist teaches us that we worship joyfully because of the greatness and the goodness of the Lord. It's not about analyzing myself or my circumstances. It's meditating on God. And that is true this afternoon, whether you feel like worshiping today or whether you would really rather be doing something else. And I don't know about you, but I've often had it on a Sunday where I've come and begun singing out of grudging obedience. And, you know, I am the pastor and I'm sitting in the front row, so people are watching me. 
And I've started to sing the words and even lifted my hands. And my heart has felt very dead and cold and sleepy. But then the music and the lyrics started doing something to me. And as I obeyed God, responding out of who he is, my subjective state chart started to change and my emotions started to align themselves with the things that I was singing. And so our question every single week when we gather here and throughout our lives is not, do I feel like worshiping? The question is, does God deserve my praises today? And however I feel, God is always worthy of my worship. And when we listen to the Holy Spirit teaching us and revealing things to us and reminding us who God is and what God has done and what God has promised, our jangled and disordered emotions begin to align themselves with ultimate reality. And notice in Psalm 98, if you have that open in front of you, how faithful memory preaches to the feelings. Right Here is the psalmist deliberately calling to his mind the acts of God in times past. Whether that's the exodus from Egypt or the return from exile or some victory over Israel's enemies or some experience of personal deliverance. The foundation of joyful praise is built brick by brick on the foundation of what God has done in history. And this is the power of testimony, testifying to one another or testifying to ourselves again of how over and over God has come through for us. And time and time again, we've been like the Israelites with our backs against the Red Sea, screaming out in terror as Pharaoh and his hosts are charging towards us. And God has opened the waters and created a path, a dry path for us to pass through so that we can sing and dance with Miriam on the other side. God is a savior who again and again rescues his people with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And God did that, and God has done that for us again and again, according to verse 3, because God is also remembering something. God is calling something to mind. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. God does not act on moods or whims. He's not jerking about arbitrarily. He's not moved by turbulent emotions or shifted by the circumstances that are happening in the world. God always acts in accordance with who he is, with his character, namely his steadfast love and his unswerving faithfulness to Israel, his covenant people. And the story of God's mighty acts in history and his acts in our own life show us God's timeless and unchanging character. And that's what gives us confidence for the future. What God does shows us who he is. And so as the church, our praise arises out of theological reflection. Fixing our eyes on God, 
fixing our minds on God, fixing our hearts on God, as we remember his salvation, as we tell ourselves and each other what God has done, as told in scripture, and then meditating on God's character behind those actions. And I think Psalm 98 tells us that the key to real joy is widening our horizons. Not pretending our problems aren't real or that the pain doesn't hurt, but situating ourselves and our story in the larger drama of what God has been doing in the world through history, the great story of God's redemption and his glory. And I think to myself, if the psalmist could do this in the relative obscurity of the old covenant, how much more as the church of God on this side of the resurrection and on this side of Pentecost, should we be rejoicing in what God has done for us? Because every week we gather and we're celebrating a salvation far greater than even the Israelites experienced in the Exodus. That through Christ, God has rescued us from slavery to sin, Satan, and death. That he's been victorious over our enemies and he's bringing us to the promised land. That's why in Philippians, Paul exhorts the little church there, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice, even though Paul is writing that letter in chains from prison. It's because Paul's heart is filled with love for Jesus, who took on the form of a servant and humbled himself to death and who despised the shame of the cross, and for the joy set before him, endured the cross so that God might reward Jesus and give him the name above every name and exalt him to the highest place. And now, Paul's whole life has been reoriented around Jesus. And all that matters to Paul, whether he lives or he dies, whether he's free or whether he's bound in chains, is that the gospel goes forth to all the world. The secret to abiding joy is learning to step out of the center of our own story and recognize that we're part of a larger and much greater story of God and his salvation, or in New Testament terms, Christ and his gospel. And our challenge as Believers, again and again, through all the difficulties and trials of life, and Jesus promised us, you will go through many afflictions and tribulations in this world. Don't deceive yourselves, but continually remind ourselves and fight the fight of faith to see ourselves in that greater story. Thank God this story is bigger than me and my problems. It's a story about God and what he is doing in the entire world. Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth, verse 4, right? We're talking about a summons to the entire human race. Not just me, not just my little group, not just Israel, but every nation under the sun. Because the 12 tribes of Israel and little TICF, we are far too small to fully express the joyful praise that King Jesus deserves. And in the Psalms, and in this Psalm, you can feel this missional impulse to call all peoples 
to gather around the Lord and worship him. To form a choir of all nations to sing the everlasting song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we exhort each other to jubilant song, as Psalm 98 describes, with music, with harps, with trumpets, and the blast of the ram's horn, not just singing, but shouting for joy. It's not very sedate or controlled. That might bother a few of you from certain traditions. This is boisterous, exuberant, expressive worship. Because although joy is deeply anchored in truth and reality, it's not a cold, non-emotional state of being, as though we could be miserable and somehow joyful at the same time. The psalmist is envisioning worship that is blowing the roof off the building because people's hearts are exploding with gladness before God. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right? Freedom from our anxieties about how other people perceive us, freedom from the cultural boundaries, the bondage that we might be in, freedom to dance and sing and leap and worship like David before the ark. Because our hearts have been so filled with the spirit of Jesus. And we feel the light of the resurrection shining on our faces. And that calls forth all artists and all musicians and all songwriters to stretch their creativity to the limit to help us in praising God. After all, we're called to sing to the Lord a new song. Not that there is something wrong with the old hymns. We love to sing those, right? But a fresh encounter with the glory of God and in every new experience of the Holy Spirit and every deeper realization of God's glory inspires us to new lyrics and new music to express the superabundant glory of God. And so we shout together before the Lord, the King. But even a choir of all peoples and all tribes and all tongues and all nations, ah, the psalmist finds, is still too small and too limited to properly express the joy of God's salvation. And so the writer of this poem begins to invite all of creation up onto the stage to worship the creator. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. He's describing what Ellen Davis calls an ecology of praise. I love that phrase, an ecology of praise. Because all creation comes from God and is destined for God. And we human beings are the worship coordinators. We have this priestly calling to give words and to give direction to the non-human creation to help it express the glory of God. And of course, that's what creation has been doing ever since the beginning of the world. Karl Barth, no relation to me, wrote that when man again accepts his destiny in Jesus Christ, he's only like a latecomer slipping shamefacedly into creation's choir in heaven 
and earth, which has never ceased its praise. Right? We human beings, we're showing up a little late to the worship practice. Creation's already on stage, but it needs us to be there to gather it together and give it words and lift it up as an offering to God. And in human arrogance, we imagine that creation exists primarily for us so that we can use it and abuse it and consume it for our own ends when actually creation exists for God. And our calling as human beings is to protect and to tend and to care for God's world so that the creator can enjoy its song of praise rising to him. And that is the basis for Christian environmental concern, worship to the Lord. And I think it should go without saying that the first rule of being a worship leader, we've never written this down, but the first rule of being a worship leader is not to kill members of your worship team, right? If Ira shoves Kenneth in front of a bus on Thursday, on Sunday, there's going to be a lack, right? There's going to be a hole here on stage and our worship will be impoverished. And if we poison the oceans and strip mine the mountains and clear cut the jungles, we are diminishing the song of joyful praise that should be arising and ascending to God from all living things. The poet Malcolm Geit writes, It's not for ourselves alone we hymn the great creator, for we lift our song to voice creation's praise. The drowsy hum of honey-laden bees, the lovely long and lapsing sigh of waves along the shore, and our own joy must all make up the song. And the whole creation is on tiptoe, leaning forward, waiting for God, longing for God's final salvation. And the last verse of our psalm, verse 9, we see this movement from God's acts in the past to his future act of salvation, his coming judgment. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's inequity. And the joyful shout, is a voice of hope. Confidence that God is going to come into this world to set all things right. Psalm 98 is not about a kind of false joy that denies that things are wrong in the world. Things are wrong in the world. There is severe suffering. There is horrific evil. Our joy is not found in escapism, that we'll just fly away and leave all these troubles behind. We rejoice, not because we're going to break out of the world, but because God is going to break in. Because God is a righteous God. Which is very good news. Stephen Westerholm writes that God's righteousness refers to the faithfulness of God toward his creation or his people. A faithfulness that moves God to intervene, to set things wonderfully right when they have gone disastrously wrong. It's the reassertion of God's goodness, seen in the restoration of just order to a disturbed creation. God's righteousness is God living up to his responsibility of being God. 
He's proving himself loyal to the commitments that he undertook when he first made the world good and adopted Israel as his people. God's righteousness is his commitment. I am going to fix things. I'm not going to let this world destroy itself. I'm not going to let human evil have the last word. I'm going to put things right. And so worship has a future tense to it. We're not just looking backwards, but we're looking forwards every week. Not putting on a fake smile and telling ourselves everything is all right. It's not all right. Within ourselves and around ourselves. But we gather with a deep confidence that there will be an end to these troubles. That God has not forgotten his people. He's already given us Christ to die on the cross. He's at work uniting all things together in Christ. And the groaning creation is going to rejoice in the full liberty of the sons and daughters of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? Joy will get the final word because Jesus is Lord. And we need to remember that as we wrestle in this world with the difficulty of finding joy, which some of us find extremely difficult. In our suffering and in our pain, we lift our eyes up to see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. He's ruling over all things for the sake of his church. He's steering all of history towards its climax in universal praise, toward the day when joy will not be a struggle, when all tears will be wiped away from our eyes, sorrow and sign will flee away forever, and we will feast together in the house of Zion. Weeping may come for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And in the meantime, brothers and sisters, Jesus has given us his spirit to give us a foretaste of the joy of the kingdom. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And that river is the Holy Spirit himself, the river of life who flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. And we need him. We desperately need him because joy is not something we can produce ourselves Not any real or lasting or substantial joy. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift of God. It is the kingdom become present in our own lives. So shall we bow our heads and pray and ask God to make that real within us? Loving Heavenly Father, we come to you in our brokenness, in our grief, in our confusion. And we ask that you would reorient us around the salvation that we have in Christ. Help us to lift up our eyes from the pit, from the miry clay, and to see Jesus, our head, and to know that we are safe and secure and triumphant in him. We pray that you would fill us with true and lasting joy, O Lord. And we pray especially for brothers and sisters here who are suffering, who are in anguish, who have Come out of obedience, even though you seem far away. We pray for those who struggle in their minds, with their emotions, with mental illness, with deep depression. And we cry out to you for mercy, for deliverance, for a word of hope. Draw near to us, God. And we pray, Jesus, come 
quickly. Come quickly and bring us into the full joy of your kingdom. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.